As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everyone and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angelique. Jordan, are the playoffs as insane as you remembered them being? Uh, no, I feel like they're more insane. They felt <laughs> like, I, I have felt like my heart rate was constantly like in this up and down. I didn't even work out, but it felt like I had that level of like, heart rate at times especially yesterday sunday yeah i just moved us straight past the pleasantries the hey how are you how are you doing because it feels right right i mean sitting and watching all of these playoff games so far they're insane they're bonkers the first line Mm. of my notes reads playoffs and mls are just wild because they are we had several games in extra time and in penalties we had several ridiculous back and forth matches jordan these games are unlike they're unlike anything you can see in the regular season or even in the MLS's back tournament, I think. They really are. One of the things that I noted in watching the games all this weekend and hearing little stats about everybody is Winston Reed for Sporting Kansas City is a professional. He's been a professional for a number of years, right? He is a veteran of all veterans and has come to MLS. And this is his first playoff experience in the professional ranks of soccer and he played in England forever. So you get things like that too, where it's like, this is just such a unique thing to American sports and to MLS that I just love it. I I think it, I mean, we have so much to talk about because so much happened, but this is what it's about. And you hear, talk to the coaches and the players, the ones that I've gotten to talk to. And they're like, this is what we play for. This is what we work every day to create consistency. So when we get to these moments, it's just, we can handle them. I was out at a, a youth academy soccer game over the weekend. And, and this is the last thing I'll say before we get into our analysis of all seven playoff games that have happened so far. But I was out at this game and I, I heard socially distanced and masked up and all that stuff. I heard one of the kids on the team talk about it and tell, tell his teammate on the bench, you just can't prepare for games. Like game fitness is something different than, than you can train for or you, you can't prepare for it. Playoffs and MLS feel that same way. You can't, you can try to create those moments of consistency. And and I think teams that do that better than other teams tend to succeed more in the playoffs. But 
the the atmosphere, even without fans, everything about the playoffs is just so absurd and ridiculous. I don't think you can truly prepare for that. And we saw some teams that maybe didn't fully prepare for that or couldn't cope with the changing circumstances as well as others. That's my long-winded introduction. Jordan, are you ready to get into chronologically all seven playoff games that happened Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? I think I am. I think I am. Taking a deep breath because we all know we need it after that. Yeah, you're very, very right. Our first game of this playoff review, it's the New England Revolution's 2-1 win over the Montreal Impact. Bruce Arena versus Thierry Henry. I mean, that is just incredible. (laughs) Jordan, what did you think of this matchup? What did the New England Revolution do well in your eyes? I had a couple of different thoughts. I I think going into this game, it was a play-in game. You don't really know what to expect, but I actually thought we saw some good soccer from both sides and some really interesting battles. I focused a little bit more on Carlos Heel because why not? Yeah. And because he is a player that is so interesting in his movement. And I started thinking about the position that he plays in that 10 spot and that playmaking spot and comparing it to other good 10s that we see in this league. And the one thing I've noticed is those players, if you're talking about Pozuelo or Sebastian Blanco before he was injured, I I think he could be dragged into that category as well, is these are players who are the playmakers and they really can go anywhere on the field to become playmakers. And so when I was watching him, I kind of keyed into him a little bit more than than normal. And so he's comfortable in playing in between the defensive line and the midfield line. But what I saw is these players, especially him in this game, and it leads to that first goal that New England scored, is he plays deep. He'll go get the ball off the center back and come all the way back as that playmaker who you think is wanting to be right in the mix of things, right behind uh, the two... I would say New England really was playing with two forwards with Bo and uh, Buxa, but we can get into that if we want to. So Carlos Hill comes all the way back, and because he comes back, he can see everything in front of him. He can see the two lines of the midfield line and the defensive line for Montreal. And as he starts playmaking on the left side for New England, the ball switches the point of attack to the right side, and the attack comes from the right side on, on a good cross into the box to eventually Carlos Heel who finishes it. But I think what is interesting about when playmakers come all the way back there is they can then watch the play develop, see where the spaces in between the lines start to um, just naturally find themselves as a team shifts defensively and then occupy the unoccupied space. And he did such a good job of just that, being patient in his movement and his running as the ball got switched. So then he was all alone on the goal on the left side. I just thought it was a beautiful finish. One, the finish was brilliant. But two, it was a beautiful representation of what he does time and time again on this team just to watch how space gets um opened up and then exploiting the space for his team. I love that. I watched the Revolution's possession shape in this game because they did control the ball. They they dictated the tempo for much of this match. I watched how they were set up, and a lot of that revolves around Carles Hill, right? It's Bruce Arena Mm -hmm. setting this team up in a 4-4-2-4-2-1-3. I mean, I I struggled to figure out what it was at times because it was fluid. And so at that point, Mm -hmm. I took a half a step back and I thought, okay, maybe we should be thinking about this revolution possession set up, not with numbers, but maybe with roles and with names for positions. And so I I took some notes and I had Adam Buxa as the pinner. He's the high number nine pinning the back line back. He he pinned Montreal's back for 
deep in this game. And then, then you have Gustavo Bo and Teal Bunbury, who I think oftentimes acted as narrow forwards. It wasn't just Bo playing off of Buxa, although it was primarily. But Bunbury mm-hmm. would also come inside off of the left and tuck in. And then you've got that narrow front three almost. And then after that, you go a layer deeper and you have Heel, who's the roamer. He's dropping back. He's moving wherever yeah. he wants to within that structure. And it works because it works because you have the two central defensive midfielders who are the garbage men. And that's that's what I decided to call them. You mm-hmm. have the garbage men cleaning up and, and moving wherever Carles Heel needs them to move. And then finally, the last piece of the attack in this game, which I think was so important, was the fullbacks. They were the width providers, right? You have so many mm-hmm. narrow players. Everyone that I just mentioned prefers to operate centrally, or at least in the half spaces. Those two fullbacks, it, it started out as Dewan. Did John? Dewan? Dewan. It started out as Dewan Jones on the left side, Tejon Buchanan, who was fantastic on the right side before going down with an injury. All the pieces for Bruce Arena worked so well together. And Jordan, if I didn't know Bruce Arena, and I don't know him personally, but if I didn't know his opinions about tactics and his general disregard for a lot of that stuff, I would think this guy was an incredible, incredible detailed tactical manager. And it just speaks to how well players can do even when they're under a sort of loosely regimented tactical structure, these guys played so well in possession against Montreal. One thing I do want to mention off of that is there isn't a lot of games this season where New England has had their three DPs on the field. And if you watch this game, you see why these DPs are so important. It was Buxa, Bo, and Carlos Heel. And a lot of the really good plays that came for New England had them incorporated in one way or the other. And what I found interesting is you mentioned... Buxa as the, he was the pin it, he pinned the yeah, defense pinner, back. The pinner, yeah. So uh, I actually noticed, so when, when I was looking at, okay, how are they playing? I, I noticed the two man front line, which you were just saying, Bo and Buxa. And Buxa actually, contradictory to where Bo was lined up as a midfielder, Buxa was coming in as a false nine and being that con- connecting player. So then Gustavo Bo could, counteract that with the runs in the seams, which he's so good at, right? Because he's better in space on the dribble than Buxa is, where Buxa is a target player, right? So if it was an open play and, and New England was run, working through the midfield, Buxa would drop in, Bo would try to press the back line and try to get through the seams. If the ball got into the attacking part of the field in the attacking third, they would switch. Bo would come into the midfield. Buxa would push the back line to be a target with his frame, with his ability in the air, with those crossed balls. So I just thought it was super interesting how they managed the role and the role in the counter movement of those two, depending on the the place in the field that they were attacking. So well organized for New England. They get that yeah. opening goal. I mean, it's in the, the 30th minute, so not exactly in the opening stages of the game, but they get the game's first goal. Through Carles Hill, you talked about that goal already. Then then in the second half, the Montreal Impact grab a goal against the run of play. It's off of a free kick. Romel Kyoto ties things at 1-1. And then it is Gustavo Bo late, late in the second half. It's in the 95th minute. The Revs are in possession and he finds a pocket of space just outside the box. And, and Gustavo Bo makes the Montreal Impact pay for giving him that space. One quick thing on Montreal. They're out of the playoffs. Their season is over except for a, a CCL game that has now been rescheduled for December. But their Major League Soccer season is over. Thierry Henry's approach to this game was not necessarily aggressive in, in that he told his team to go get the ball at all costs. We need to be in possession all the time. But it was aggressive in that when they were back defending, the wingers just didn't track back. 
the wingers had no desire or or they were specifically told and that's my my educated guess they were told not to track back and help so that they could grab space and get attacking attacking chances in the attacking half they did not move back to help their fullbacks at all which gave the the new england revolution tons of room to work with but also made them dangerous on the counterattack and credit to andrew farrell and henry kessler for shutting down so many of those montreal impact counterattacks because i think without that that balance and without those two guys in the back for new england this game probably would have had a very different scoreline yeah that's a really good point. Okay, Jordan, are you ready to move on to our second game, the second Eastern Conference playoff game between Inter-Miami and Nashville SC? I'm ready, and I'm going to start this, because why did Inter-Miami play Lewis Morgan Central <laughs> Joe? I still don't know. I mean, clearly they weren't listening to your preview of them where you said Lewis Morgan Come should be on. isolated out wide. I mean, Diego, 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 Diego. Get with it. Ah, that is Get shameful. So so that is a big issue, right? And I think it was called out on the broadcast as well. Having a guy who's probably more inclined to play wide and take guys on 1v1 or, or drive into space in a central position. Lewis Morgan played as a right-sided central midfielder in this game, which I thought was strange as well, Jordan. I just don't understand why – what – I really like I'm genuinely asking you this question. Why do you think Miami lined up in the posture that they did? They've played a three back before, but I think that they've been a little bit more sturdy as of late playing in a a 4-2-3-1. And they've had some creativity with Pizarro. I mentioned those tight relationships, and I think that they could have just pushed Matuidi up to that attacking midfielder spot, which we know from watching this game, he didn't want to defend anyways. And... (laughs) Then, then you put, <laughs> you just put a four back with Ambrose and, and then you can put Morgan on the, the right wing. And so you can isolate him and really have a creative player in Matweedy and his ability to pass because he's a really good passer. He could find Morgan in those spaces, but I'm just so confused why they did that. And, and the shape did change. Miami comes out in a five, three, two, it's fluid again. So it's not exactly a five, three, two, but at least five at the back with Morgan in a more central space. And then once they go down 2-0 in the first half, Diego Alonso makes a first-half sub and brings brings on someone to shift it to that forward-the-back shape, getting Morgan a little bit higher and wider. But it comes when you're down 2 to nothing, right? And the only mm-hmm. thing I can think of for, for why this initial shape would have happened and why Morgan would have been tucked in centrally is if Inter-Miami was trying to force Nashville to have the ball and they wanted to absorb pressure. Miami wanted to sit back in a bank yeah. of five and then a bank of three, sometimes maybe a bank of four in front of those back five, absorb pressure and then counterattack. Maybe that's what they were trying to do, and they thought they could execute that game plan better out of a back five with Morgan centrally right. than the other way around. But it didn't work, right? I mean, we see right. them change after they're 2-0 down. Nashville are looking comfortable with the ball and have scored twice. I mean, it didn't it didn't work, and I think it reflects poorly on Diego Alonso's ability to assess his players and where they're best suited to play on the field, and then actually how he approached this game specifically. Well, I think also credit has to go to Gary Smith because he probably knew that Miami thought, oh, let's give Nashville the ball and just let them try to break us down. And Gary Smith was like, all right, well, we're just going to high press you, win the ball back <laughs> as high on the field as we can and create opportunities out of this. I thought that that Nashville's structure defensively and their ability to – you know, this is a playoff, a coach who's been successful in playoffs in the past in Major League Soccer, winning MLS Cup with Colorado Rapids back in 2010. So he knows what it takes to just add a little wrinkle to your game in order to catch the other team off guard. And I really think Miami was caught off guard with the ability of Nashville to 
get after them. Alex Mule was a terror up there. Yeah, he took his Red Bull principles and just stashed them into the <laughs> into the Nashville starting lineup and got after guys for Inter Miami. That's for sure, Jordan. Uh huh. I mean, this game for me, I, I like the defensive side for Nashville, and, and I think that's what we have focused on a lot this year and what a lot of people have focused on because they've been so solid. Mm-hmm. I want to look at their goals in this game. They went yeah. three to nothing. Okay, let's do it. The first goal is in the 14th minute. It's Randall Leal. Then they grab a second one 10 minutes later. Henny Mukhtar penalty to make it two to nothing. And then Dax McCarty drives forward out of midfield for that third goal, the, the real he final blow go in the second half. Oh, Way! Didn't you feel like it was one of those moments? Yeah, it happened in slow motion, and yet I'm sure Dax McCarty was running faster than I could run um, in that moment. But Nashville's goals, their open play goals specifically. Sorry, Mukhtar, we're Mm going to throw out that that penalty. I want to look at just the first goal and the third goal. I think these two plays show us one main thing about Nashville and one main thing about Inter-Miami as well. So Nashville, for me... It's their second ball structure. And I, I maybe yes. will continue to talk about this as Nashville are, are continuing their run. They're off to play Toronto FC in the second round or the first round. It's it's very confusing. Yeah, it's still the first round. It's strange. But their second ball structure is what makes the first goal possible. So it's a long ball from Romney at the left-sided center back spot intended for new designated player Yonder Cadiz as the number nine. Miami deals with that initial ball. That's not really that hard to do to clear a long ball from from your back line and get it out of that space. So Miami headed away, but Nashville have players lurking, waiting for that second ball, waiting for Miami to deal with the danger. It's Mukhtar, it's Mule, it's Randall Leal, and then the number nine, Yonder Cadiz as well. It's four guys in the general area of the long ball. So when Miami head away the first pass, that that long ball from Dave Romney, Nashville clean it up really easily, and it gets Randall Leal on the ball in a pocket of space just outside the box, and he scores. Matuidi is not interested in defending. He's not interested in tracking back, and that second ball structure from Nashville made that possible, and it also really highlighted how slow uh, Inter-Miami's defense can be, and we do see that again on the second goal with Dax McCarty striding forward. No one's stopping him. No one's stepping to him from midfield, and no one's stepping forward out of the back line, but Nashville continue to impress me, and the way that they use their established offensive tactics to to really work their way right through Miami's slow defensive structure, I think was so impressive in this game. And I want to give credit to them for that. And I think one of the things that is benefits them is Mukhtar's ability on the ball when he's the player picking up that second ball. Oh, so much more opens up for this Nashville team. And I think they look like a, a completely different team going forward because you just said it, the principles are there. So this is, we're going to relieve pressure by playing it long, using an outlet ball. We don't have to win the first ball, but we have to win the second ball. And when the second ball, or even from the second ball, that, that next pass goes to Mukhtar, he has the ability to beat people on the dribble or find the correct pass in order to link Nashville up in a threatening position. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, this is an almost complete performance from Nashville SC, winning this game three to nothing, establishing that they are... They're going to be difficult to deal with in the Eastern Conference. Yeah. They're playing Toronto in the next round, which is... I, I was talking with Ben Wright of Speedway Soccer down in Nashville before this this Nashville opening playoff game happened, and we were talking about how interesting that Toronto FC game could be. Greg Vanny wants to control the ball, and he wants to dictate possession. Nashville are very comfortable to let you... They're very comfortable with letting you do that, getting mm-hmm. the ball and then driving forward. This matchup in the in the first round now of the Eastern Conference playoffs, that will be happening tomorrow, and we'll talk about that very soon. It's going to be a fun one in the East. I know my eyeballs are on it. <laughs> Watching it very closely. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On to the first non-play-in playoff game that we have to talk about today. It is Orlando City's 1-1 win over NYCFC in the first round. In the Eastern Conference. Wait, what? Yeah, let's... Did you say 1-1 win? 1-1 win on penalty (laughs) kicks. This is the game. This is the game that everyone probably knows about already because it was filled with insanity. I mean, there is just so much ridiculousness that happens. Jordan, do you want to highlight any one specific point of insanity or should we just kind of brush past the wheelchair and the kick and the penalty kick thing that happened? Well, I had a game with the crew right after this game. So I basically got to see the first 10 minutes, which after the first 10 minutes, I thought, wow, this is going to be wild. (laughs) And it really was the beginning of the game and the end of the game. So I think we can kind of fast forward a little bit through most of it and get to the end because I didn't, I actually didn't get to see the majority of it, but you have a couple of points, I'm sure, of what you saw or what your takeaways were from this, this crazy wild one in Orlando. I want to start with one one moment of the it wasn't off the field stuff because it happened on the field but it wasn't in the actual you know flow of the game I'm not really sure how to describe that and I'm not doing a very good job of it but one moment of the extracurriculars we'll go with that and yes, it, it truly okay. is when when Juan is on the sideline right and he's he's already kicked Gary McKay Steven and and there's been the whole small shove from McKay Steven that gets Juan laying on the ground and my, my favorite part of this, it's not the wheelchair that, that Orlando City tries to bring Juan, who very clearly does not need a wheelchair. He's fine. <laughs> um, but he gets, he, he's laying there, and Nani comes over and gives him a massage, right? It's, it's Gary Mackay Steven who had shoved Juan down on the ground on the sideline. Then Juan had kicked him out, just to give a little bit of context. Nani comes over and starts giving his, his stomach a massage, right? And he's, again, he's fine. And the ref, you can see the ref just circling in the background. And, and he's waiting for Huan to stand up because he has something to give Huan. And after the massage happens and, and Huan steals himself and stands up, the referee walks over and gives him a red card directly after he stands up. I mean, this thing, you could write a book about what happened oh just in that, that incident between Huan and Mikai Steven and Nani and the ref as secondary characters. There's so much going on here. Um, and there's so many other ridiculous things that happen when the, when the ball is not in play in this game. But if we're looking at tactics between the <laughs> moments of general insanity and at some more specific things, let's touch on the goals quickly. Okay. It's Orlando City in the fifth minute who get the opening goal of this game. It's Nani from a penalty. Orlando City is in possession. They have the ball and they're moving it well, as both teams did at times in this game. Chris Mueller has the ball and he plays across into the box from the right wing. He's dangerous in that space. And Nani had tucked inside and he gets his head on the ball and draws a handball from Anton Tinnerholm. So Nani rises up, gets on the ball, heads it more or less into Anton Tinnerholm's arm, and it's an easy 
penalty call for the referee. And Nani steps up and finishes, which he does not do in the penalty kick shootout. Right. Then NYCFC answer right back. And it did set the tone for this game being back and forth. It's Maxime Cheneau. Pretty much right after Nani scores his penalty, NYCFC go down the field, earn a corner kick. Medina takes it and Cheneau scores the header. And that that speaks to my greater point about this game. And my biggest takeaway Every once in a while, when I'm watching an MLS game, I have a moment where I think to myself, man, the quality in this league is improving, and the talent is so much better now than it has ever been. This mm-hmm. game was one of those moments for me. You look at those opening goals, it's it's Nani getting the first one. It's Maxime Cheneau, who's a very good center back, getting the next one. The players surrounding the goal scorers as well on both sides, there's real talent in this in this yeah. game and in this league. And every once in a while, I have that eureka moment of seeing the quality soccer that we get to watch sometimes. This game for me was entertaining. It was back and forth. It was two teams who were comfortable on the ball. And it made for a fun game of soccer. Well, Joe, the thing that also goes along with your point is that this was the fourth and fifth best team in the East. And actually, I would throw, I wouldn't say the Red Bulls were necessarily that sixth team. I would actually say New England in the way that they played for a large majority of this season. They showed us some real ability to play. And so when you're talking about the depth of this league, man, I think that there are so many. It is improving. And this game was a showcase of that, not only with the players on the field and their just the names on the back of their jerseys, but how the teams are playing now. I'm with you, Jordan. There is talent in this league, and it's encouraging sometimes to be reminded of that. One tactical thing from each team before we move on. These are both forward-looking points. Let's first start with NYCFC. They lose this game in the penalty shootout due to some just extreme bonkersness, which is a new word that I think should be in Webster's Dictionary. Yes. But if you haven't heard about this game or if you haven't seen it, I I will not do it justice. I will not do the shootout justice. Go watch it. It's on Twitter. You can find it. It's it's (laughs) insane. But NYCFC, my takeaway from them in this game, there was a moment in in the first half, it's in the 43rd minute, where Keaton Parks is drifting in midfield and he, he gets on the ball. The center back passes in the ball and Parks just shimmies away from a defender. He shimmies away from an oncoming presser then drives 45 yards forward. It was reminiscent of that Dax McCarty goal in the Nashville game. He drives forward into the attack, plays a simple ball to Castellanos, who shoots, Gaiese blocks it, Parks crashes on the second ball, and Gaiese saves it again. I'm not interested in the end result from this play, but it's the 45-yard drive out of midfield and his escape from pressure that has me thinking, one, I like Keaton Parks, and two, yeah. I think we could be seeing that that shimmy out of pressure and drive forward in midfield for the U.S. men's national team on December 9th when they play El Salvador down in Miami. I mean, he is a guy Ooh. who I think could be in the at least a domestic player pool for Greg Berhalter yeah. to call up during the, the 12 international tournaments that will be happening at the same time coming up next summer, I believe it is. Yeah, so that's funny that you said that because I didn't know what you were specifically talking about or where you were going with it, but right when you said Keaton Parks and shimmy out of pressure, I was like, my next question to you was going to be like, are we going to see him with the men's national yep. team? And there you go. You, you answered it. <laughs> Jordan, we're on the same page. And I, I just think Keaton Parks can contribute to mm-hmm. – I just think Keaton Parks can contribute to something that Greg Berhalter is trying to do. I'm not sure what level that's going to be at or exactly right. how that's going to happen. But he should happen. get a look. He should get a look. And I think he's earned that yeah. look this season. Orlando, quickly, because we will see them playing in the second round against the winner of New England and the Philadelphia Union. That will happen tomorrow. Orlando had a moment in the first half. It was the 15th minute. I guess I'm going hyper-specific with these things. That wasn't really intentional. I like it. But in the 15th minute, they have the ball on their left side. And and with Orlando, if you think about their left side, number one, it's Nani out on the left wing. Mm-hmm. Number two, it's Mauricio Pereira drifting over to that left side from his number 10 spot. 
And that's what happens in this moment. It's Nani who, who plays the ball into Pereira, who then slips Daryl DK, who drifted over slightly to the left side. He slips DK in behind the back line with a one-touch pass. DK then muscles his way into getting a shot off that Sean Johnson does save. But that three-man combination play between Nani with the one-touch from Pereira to the strength that DK shows and the speed to get in behind the back line, or, or at least to slip into the box... Those three guys are incredibly difficult to deal with, and they're going to be difficult for the winner of Philadelphia and the New England Revolution to deal with in the second round. Mm -hmm. Still the first round, but yes. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We'll move past that. Wait, no. They're the first round. See, I'm even confused. Yeah, and I think I think at this point we're probably confusing our listeners, so maybe we'll just tell them to go look at a bracket. Um, MLS yeah, has a great a one. MLS has a great one on their website. Yeah, um, I yeah. cannot recommend okay, it highly on. enough. Okay, Jordan, let's get to let's get to Saturday, the second game in Saturday, which was Columbus Crew New York Red Bulls. Um, wow. Yeah, I thought we were going to see another another uh, jaunt to overtime at the end of this one. I um, it was wild for for you, Joe. You were. Uh, observer from a different angle <laughs> what sticks out to you uh right away because i i think when i was watching the game there was a couple things that popped out to me that i was talking about on the broadcast but i'm interested to know what you were thinking yeah so for me it feels wrong because they have been eliminated but i was more interested in watching the red bulls in this game they, they lose it three to two to the columbus crew they make a late push at the end but i was interested in watching the new york red bulls in this game because it was gerhard struber's first game coaching the Red Bulls. I mean, they had announced his signing more than a month ago, if not two months ago mm -hmm. at this point. Time is, is yeah. strange, especially now. But he's been announced for a while, and he, he finally makes his way over to the team after Visa and, and COVID complications. And he takes over in this game for interim manager Bradley Carnell, which is weird, right? I, I was strange. confused by the timing alone, coming over and having your first game and be in a year that's as strange as 2020 has been and be a, in a season where you haven't spent much time with this team at all. But he takes over in this game, and so I was interested in watching how the Red Bulls played and how they lined up and what they tried to do. And it didn't look it didn't look a lot different than what we've seen a lot through the years with the New York Red Bulls, especially after they make that change from Mike Pecky to Jesse Marsh. But in the first half, I wanted to point out a, a shape change, a shape shifting. In the first half, the okay. Red Bulls, from what I saw, played in a 4-4-2 diamond with Royer and Barlow up top, Caden Clark, the youngster, the 17-year-old, as the 10. Then they play with two eights and a number six. That that shape, that Philadelphia Union-esque diamond shape was different than what the Red Bulls had done this season. They change it, I think, in the second half to a flat 4-4-2. But that honestly was my main observation, looking at what we could see in 2021 from Gerhard Struber and the New York Red Bulls. And we could see the diamond. It, it at least looks that way. Yeah, and I think that was interesting because it caused some problems for Columbus in the first half and just how they were going to press in the midfield. And when they went into a high press and the ball went to the bottom of the diamond, if Artur Nagby went to press the, that player who was the six for Red Bulls, then it left Caden Clark in a huge gap. And I felt like the Red Bulls for about 20 minutes did a really good job of using their structured diamond to pull apart and ask questions of the midfield shape, that defensive shape for uh, the Columbus crew, which was a really interesting battle. And I think they, they made some adjustments by adjustments by bringing one of their two higher attackers, either Zardes or Celerion back a little bit to help with that uh, holding midfield player. 
as the game wore on, but it was really, it was fun to watch how Red Bulls moved the ball and were willing to move the ball through the midfield to try to pull apart the the defense of the crew. And the Red Bulls get the opening goal in this game. It is the youngster, Caden Clark, who only scores big goals, it seems like. Um, I know that's not sustainable, but so far in his career, he scored three and they've all been pretty big goals. But in his playoff debut, he gets one in the 23rd minute. The Red Bulls win the ball back in midfield, or they win the ball in midfield and transition mm-hmm. quickly. That's the the summary of this goal. It ends up with a poor clearance from Harrison Offal once the Red Bulls work the ball into the box. Darlington Nagby uh, is looking at the ball and not moving around in the Blaise Matuidi school of defending a little bit. He gets his own goal later on, so we'll give him some grace. But it is a nice play from the Red Bulls doing exactly what they want to do, winning the ball, moving forward as quickly as possible, and then cleaning up stuff in the box when loose balls pop up. That's the opening goal. The crew respond, though. Very, very quickly yeah. after that. And Pedro Santos grabs the penalty. It's a bang, bang. I mean, the Red Bulls score. The crew fight right back and score. I think at that point, they start to do their thing, right? They start to move the ball a little mm-hmm. bit more. They start to have control of the game. And I, I think, Jordan, that leads into the second half with Darlington Nagby's goal. But this is a good chance for us, not getting into the weeds about the crew goals, but a good chance for us to talk about the Columbus crew. They move on from this game. Jordan, what did you see from Caleb Porter's team? What did you like about what they did to get them that 3-2 win in this game? I actually thought that Artur and Nagby were really quiet. And there's a couple of reasons why they were quiet. And I think it plays into the game plan that Caleb Porter had. Is when you're playing the Red Bulls, what's the first thing you think? I mean, you think about them pressing you and them attacking quickly after. You're right. But it all comes from the press. So when you have two of the two holding midfielders who like to get on the ball, especially get on the ball deep and be your outlet player for them to be quiet means a couple of things. I do think at the beginning of the, of the game and it changed as the game went on, but I think Caden Clark was man marking Darlington Nagby for a good portion of that first part of the, the game, not to allow him to build up. So you take that out of, off of Nagby, but I think Caleb Porter said, we're not even going to work it's not that they weren't even going to try because they did try to play out of the back a few times. And it sometimes almost cost them because of the the high press of Red Bulls. But they were willing to go route one, as we've called it here on uh, MLS Assist, straight to Jassy's artist. And my big takeaway, at one point in the game, this was when, this is later in the game. So 75th minute when Darlington Nagby had the um, collision in the midfield or the ball off of his head. And there was a big pause for that um, concussion protocol. I was looking at stats and Jossie Zardes had won 12 of his 14 aerial duels. Wow. Which is, yeah, one, that he's in that many aerial duels. Two, it shows you that the crew were playing direct balls to Zardes, direct balls to Zardes, and then second ball structure, right? How were they picking up the ball in that space? Santos, Celerayon, Derek Etienne sliding inside to help win the second ball. Um, different from what we've seen of Columbus crew. And I think the willingness and the ability to prepare for a game like that and against a team who is so distinct tactically the two weeks really helped the crew hone in on how they were going to play, and I think they executed it pretty much to a T. And credit to the Columbus crew for their versatility. We've talked about this in, mm-hmm. in past weeks as well. If you want them to sit back and control the ball and build up against pressure in specific moments, they will. If you want them to play yeah. more against the ball and attack and transition, they will and they can and they have. If you want them to play yeah. longer out of the back to avoid that first couple of pressing lines from a team like the Red Bulls, 
They can do that too. They showed that in this game. Jossie Zardes was strong. The crew had runners around him and were able to move forward as a unit into the attacking half. The Columbus crew are a hard team to beat because if you come in with one game plan, if you come in one way Mm. defensively, they're likely or at least they're capable of finding a way around that and getting still still creating attacking chances no matter how you choose to approach them as the defensive team. And Lucas Celerion's name is not on the score sheet for this one, but he set up the Pedro Santos play where Santos ends up drawing a PK. He plays the ball out and is part of Derek Etienne's cross to Jossi's artist. So I think that it's a little sneaky way of, of Celerion saying, all right, I'm back. I want to be pulling the strings and dictating play. So that was, I think, for the crew, really a, a big moment for them. I do want to say, going back to the New York Red Bulls goal from Caden Clark, I am. You, you said he only scores really gro- good goals. This technique that he has on his shot, the ball's coming back at him, Joe, and he's running towards the frame of goal. It is highly likely that a lot of players are going to send that up in a way because they're going to try to hit it too hard. He strikes it with such a short, snappy swing, and he actually hits it into the ground. So then the ball bounces up, and it makes it so difficult for Aloy Room to know where it's going to go next. I thought that was one of the best exhibits of technique on a volley like that that I've seen in a long time. It was beautiful. Jordan, 17. that's such good insight because I look at that goal and think, wow, he scored a goal. But that's because I've never played soccer. I've never tried to do what he did, right? And I think a lot of so listeners good. out there will be with me in that regard. And and for the few of you out there that maybe did play really high-level soccer, that's awesome. And you know how hard this goal was. But for a lot of us, I'm just ignorant on that. And I, I appreciate being educated on how hard it can be to connect cleanly with the ball in that situation and score a huge goal in a playoff game. That is huge. That's top-notch. Yeah. yeah. And just the pressure and all of the, you know, he's playing in the – arguably one of the most important positions for the Red Bulls in that high press system, right? Because he needed to be available at all times to not only pressure, which I think he did really well, but also be the outlet when they did win the ball to get into good positions to hopefully create and score goals. And he did all those things. I just, I'm over talking about him being 17 because he did not look out of place. He's not going to be here for long. Caden Clark started over Kaku, who the Red Bulls paid several million dollars for in this game, under a new manager that was coming in with fresh mm-hmm. eyes. That is, mm-hmm. that's something. Yeah. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, let's let's move on. We can we can talk about okay. Caden Clark all day if we wanted to. <laughs> on to the the first game of Sunday. So now we're on the final day of of the weekend, 
And this is Sporting Kansas City's 3-3 win. Again, this is on penalties, not a 3-3 win on scoreline. Mm-hmm. It's a 3-3 win over the San Jose Earthquakes' Tim Melia, saving all three Earthquakes penalties. A ridiculous performance from him in, in the shootout. I'd never seen a goalkeeper saving the first three penalties and essentially winning this for his team in my entire life. He didn't even dive on one of them. He just <laughs> shuffled and grabbed it. Like, I can't believe that. Yeah. I, I still can't believe it. Like, he just knew. I don't... He needs to write a book on it when he's done with this because he can't give away his secrets sure, right now. Sure, sure. But he has secrets. He has secrets. Yeah, he's he's a wizard, which is not just a nod to the Kansas City <laughs> Wizards. He is so good at reading hips of of the penalty takers. He can see wow. what, like a slight shift in how they're standing that could give him an idea of where they're going to place the ball. And and he did that very well also, in this shootout. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and no one now wants to play SKC. No one. Because mentally, can you imagine going into that game saying, like, un- unless you can beat them, which I thought I thought Kansas City was definitely, I mean, this game was open, right? It was back and forth. It was like, I don't think I've seen as many dribbles in space, right? Like, just long dribbles in any other game in this, this season. But if they can get to a, a shootout, you're not beating them, which is wild. No, yeah, you're you're done at that point. Or or at least that's what happened in this game to the San Jose Earthquakes before the penalty kick shootout, before Tim Melia plays the hero and plays it very, very well. There are other late fireworks, not as late in the game, mm-hmm. but at the end of regulation, before extra time, the end of regulation, it's two to two. And and we're not sure what's gonna happen. It looks like we're cruising towards an extra time anyway. But Gianluca Busio scores a goal. It's in second half stoppage time. And everything seems like Sporting Kansas City is going to going to win this game. All signs appear to be pointing in that direction. And then Chris Wondolowski says, no, actually, we're going to score this goal. We're going to tie it up. And it was in, even later in the second half stoppage time that Wando grabs the late, late, late equalizer that sends them to extra time. And even though the earthquakes fall in penalties, they persevered in that moment and grabbed that late goal. Jordan, if you'll indulge me, I want you and I to yeah. go through these last two goals. The Busio goal. Mm-hmm. And the Wando goal to talk about why or, or how these late, late, late fireworks happened. Because for me, that was the craziest part of this game besides the penalty shoot. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so goal number one. Technically, it was the fifth goal of the game and sporting Kansas City's third goal of the game. But goal number one in this discussion is Gianluca Busio's goal. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk us through it, Jordan, and then I'm going to turn it to you to, to give some more insight into this goal. Sporting Kansas City recover the ball in their own half, and it's Johnny Russell on the ball, who's all the way back, almost as a left back in this moment. He gets the ball, and he, he plays it forward to, to Gerso, who then cuts it into the box for Kyrie Shelton. So Sporting Kansas City have quickly moved up the left side, the far side of the field, and gotten the ball into the box for Kyrie Shelton. Kyrie Shelton then plays an unbelievably clever little flick back heel to Gianluca Busio in the box. So he's running forward and, and somehow manages to flick it back and to, to place it with a back heel. Kyrie Shelton places it into Gianluca Busio's path, who then scores. And at that point, it's 3-2. to two. Everything seems like Sporting Kansas City is going to win. This goal, Jordan, that flick specifically from Kyrie Shelton, is one of the best things I've seen in Major League Soccer this season. Yeah, I think I just yelled in my apartment, wow, like, oh my <laughs> gosh, it was so good. And the funny thing about the flick is you think flick is like just a soft little touch. He somehow got so much pace on it Mm -hmm. to get it to Busio with enough time for him to take a touch and then finish, 
which in that moment when everyone's flooding back towards you in the box, I think that's pretty incredible and just shows the awareness of Shelton to know that he needed to get it there with a little bit of pace. I'm curious, Joe, do you remember how the ball got turned over? It was a sloppy turnover by San Jose, wasn't it? I can't remember, to be honest with you. You can't remember? Well, regardless of the the turnover, I I don't think it was like the cleanest of plays by San Jose. And I think we were seeing this over and over again throughout all of the games. And this is the difference in the playoffs, is the intensity of of focus in moments when you're trying to build up or you're trying to create something for your team – if it goes wrong, the margins of error are so cost so much more. And this turnover and this win back by Johnny Russell, it shows how much Kansas City, their mentality in those moments to believe that they could figure out a way to get get a goal out of it. And their movements, I thought Gerso's movement to, I think he even checked a little bit towards Russell and then just blasted past the outside back to get into the space. It was a beautiful run by Gerso and he probably won't get all the credit that he deserves in that moment because of what we just talked about on the end of the goal. But the execution by by Sporting Kansas City and and those players that they have in big moments that have played under Peter Vermees and have trained this over and over again, I think it really showed off in that goal. The last thing I want to talk about with this Sporting Kansas City goal before we shift to Chris Wondolowski's finish for the Earthquakes later on in this game is Kyrie Shelton's movement. You just talked about Gerso's okay. movement, but Kyrie mm-hmm. Shelton, and I touched on this already, but I want to zoom in on it a little bit more. When, when Gerso's on the ball, Kyrie Shelton is making his run towards the end line. He's on the left side of the box. He's running towards towards out of bounds, essentially. He's going forward in the box. And in that movement from Kyrie Shelton forces San Jose's center backs to run with him. He's forcing those players mm-hmm. to respect his movement because if you don't, then he's on the ball in space with time to turn and maybe even get a shot off or at least find a pass. And so San Jose move with him. They, they follow him deeper and deeper into the box. And when Kyrie Shelton gets on the ball... He's moved one, if not both of those center backs, or at least delayed their their movement to be able to respond to whatever happens next. And because he's dragged them with him towards the end line, that creates that pocket of space for Jean-Luc Abusio higher up in the box. So the, the counter movement, think about this. So Kyrie Shelton's running towards the end line, and then the next thing that happens is the ball moves directly backwards. The center backs are running mm-hmm. with him towards the end line, and they can't turn and then accelerate to get to Busio by the time the ball gets there. And so Kyrie Shelton's almost solo counter movement of moving himself and then moving the ball in an, in an exact opposite direction to Busio is for me what makes this goal possible. That that shift yeah. of positioning is just perfect from Kyrie Shelton. His ability to manipulate those defenders is key to this goal. Well, also if he doesn't do that, Gerso has no way to get the ball to Busio, who is the open player. Yeah. Because of the angle that was denied by the defender who was on Gerso. So... He had to have another outlet. He had to have another pass. And so you're exactly right. That counter movement only dragged the defenders, but it was the only option that Gerso would have had in order to eventually find the open player. One of my favorite goals in the league this season, hands down. Okay. Um, even okay, even like Wando's it. goal, as intricate as it was, cannot cannot top Sporting Kansas City's goal for me. But because it's Chris Wondolowski and a game-tying goal in the 97th minute, Jordan, we have to talk about it. It just, you know what was funny is... Sporting Kansas City, right before they scored the goal, it was a huge save by Amelia on Wando. And yep. you thought, oh, that's Wando's moment. That's Wando's head moment. He almost headed it into the goal. Amelia, brilliant save. 
that if he doesn't make that save, I don't think SKC scores a goal. Agreed. Right? I think San Jose keeps the lead. They play out the rest of the few minutes that were left in stoppage time, and it's a 3-2 win San Jose. But he makes the save. The goal happens for Sporting Kansas City. And then you think, no way. Like, is he going to have another shot? Like, you can't count Chris Wondolowski out. You just can't ever count him out. And he's in the box on this play. It's in. It's late, late, late in the game. Christian Espinosa is on the far side of the field. He's on the right side. Who was brilliant? Fantastic. He's a he's an incredible player in Major League Soccer and probably mm-hmm. doesn't get enough love. But it's Christian yeah. Espinosa on the far side of the field and several Quakes attackers in the box, hoping and praying for service because it's the last play of the game. It is the last play of the game, no doubt about it. And so San Jose have the ball out wide, and there's there's guys lurking and they're just waiting for service and. And the service comes in. It's a 3v3 for the Earthquakes yeah. at the edge Time of the six-yard box. Go ahead, Jordan. Timeout. At this moment, how fast was your heart beating? Fast. And my computer was close oh to dying. Oh, my gosh. So I was, was like, is this anxiety? What's happening? <laughs> okay. Yeah, there was, it was just like, uh, I can't believe this is really going to happen. This is really going to happen. Like, I think I stood up because I was like, no way. Is this really going to happen? So continue. Time in. Okay. Thank you. No, I like that interjection. So, so it's a 3v3 at the edge of the six-yard box. Three Earthquakes attackers, one of them is Chris Wondolowski, against both Sporting Kansas City center backs and Jalen Lindsay, who's tucked inside in this moment. That 3v3, if you're Sporting Kansas City, is not a good situation because one of those guys uh-huh. is Chris Wondolowski, one of the best moving forwards in, certainly in Major League Soccer and maybe in a larger geographical area. He's, he's lurking just behind Roberto Puncic's in this moment, and the ball comes in, and you know what's going to happen at that point. The ball's coming in, and Wando continues to lurk, and he steps forward, just behind Punjic, just in front of Lindsay. His starting position was good. He moves quicker than the defender. He reacts quicker than the defender. That's why he's a legend, because he used all the little underlying factors to get his head on the ball and score this incredible, much-needed goal for the San Jose Earthquakes. Chris Wondolowski, I I want someone to ISO him and just show forwards his movement in the box. So it's like a a, a side-by-side of where the ball is in space, whether it's on the wing, uh, whatever side it's on, it's coming through centrally, and showing Wondolowski's movement. Because even in that play, Joe, it was – I don't even – I wouldn't even say it was like a couple seconds. He – in a matter of moments, half seconds, like the the smallest of time, he – Checked towards the ball to engage Puncic, which you just said. He stepped away back towards the top of the six or back towards the 18. And then he drove into the space. So he eventually, he eventually scored. Like it's so small, right? But engaging the defender, separating from the defender right when they're engaged with where the ball is and then getting into the space. He is so good at moving in the box. Like again, Melia's got the PK book. Wando's got the how to move in the box book. And it looks like we might get one more season of Chris Wondolowski. Not, we're not sure. I don't think it's been confirmed yet by any means. But he's still a productive forward in Major League Soccer. Yeah. Um, whether he chooses to yeah. come back or not, that will be the case for this 2020 season, which is very, mm-hmm. very impressive in its own right. Okay, I think we should move on from that that game. But I just do want to say we've talked all season long about San Jose and how wild they are. But they are they are good under they are good with the ball. And before they scored their first goal, I want you guys to go back and watch if you can between the twentieth and the twenty second minute. They had the ball the entire time. They moved it from Nick Lima regained possession in his own box. It went all the way down the field, came back past half field. And then back again to attack and score that first goal. 
And I think Stu Holden on the broadcast said they need to be more dangerous. And I actually think they were being dangerous by pulling Sporting Kansas City out of this lower block a little bit and stretching the lines. And then they attacked, and it was a really good goal by um, San Jose. So I just do want to say they're good with the ball when they possess and when they build up. And we've seen that all season. It was a really good um, – they put it on show there. On to the next game. And I agree with you there, Jordan. I okay. appreciate you highlighting that. On to the, the next game in the Western Conference. This is Minnesota United's 3 nothing win over the Colorado Rapids. Minnesota United have a couple of players in this game who, mm-hmm. who put on an absolute show. Um, Jordan, do you want to guess who they are or should I just go ahead and say it? I can guess, but that's no fun because I'm going to say who you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll say it. I appreciate you uh, you letting me toss these guys out there. Because everybody's thinking it. Everybody's thinking it. It's Kevin Molino and Emmanuel Reynoso. These two guys, Jordan. Okay, actually, you know what? I'm going to let you go first because I, uh, I might go on for a while and no one wants that to happen. So what did you like about these two attacking playmakers from Minnesota United in this game? The thing that sticks out to me about them and why I think they work so well together is because they actually both enjoy being a player under pressure in tight space and figuring out a way to get out of it. And so I think that because they both like that, they naturally like navigate to tighter spaces where there's more defenders, but they can figure out a way either on the dribble or connecting with one another or picking up the ball from when the other person does dribble and lose it. The other one's right there, and they play off each other so well of of picking up those balls and keeping possession. Um, I don't know. It's hard to really describe their relationship, but if I'm a Minnesota United fan, I am just, like, drooling at the fact that they are playing together, and you better keep Molino for a lot longer. (laughs) It reminds me, these two guys remind me of when I was playing soccer at a low level growing up. And it seems like there's always a couple really good players on the team, like, who are just a little bit better than everyone else. It reminds me of of in a scrimmage at the end of practice if somehow those two players got put on the same side and and it's the mm-hmm. two best players and some some decent players with them against kind of everybody else. When I watch Emmanuel Reynoso and Kevin Molino play, it's like those two good players on the the scrimmage, right? It's those guys combining right. off of each other and just moving and having fun. They're toying with everyone else on the field. They toyed with yeah. the Colorado Rapids in this game. And the Rapids, in their own in their own right, had some great moments. They came out firing at the beginning of the second half. They they were very very close to getting on the board, getting on the scoreboard, and getting back in this game. But Molino and Reynoso, when they're together on the ball, they're so hard to stop. Yeah. And they carved up the Rapids over and over and over again in this match. And and that's the question: like, how do you stop them? Yeah. Uh, the Rapids took an interesting approach to that. I don't know if that was rhetorical or not, but I'm jumping in anyway. The Rapids man mark in midfield. They have almost all season, and, and we haven't talked about it a lot, and I haven't heard anyone else talk about it. But Robin Frazier has sets up his midfielders and even some of his wide players to do exactly what Matias Almeida and the San Jose Earthquakes do, just on a slightly more reserved level. And on paper, that makes sense, right? On paper, you think, okay, maybe that's how you do it. Maybe that's how you stop these guys, is you just assign someone to follow them around and not let them breathe. It did not work. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. On the first goal from Minnesota United, Kevin Molino and Reynoso combine in the final third. It's off of a throw-in. Molino kind of takes the ball off Reynoso, but then Molino curves around and finishes really cleanly with his left foot into that bottom far side netting. It's a great goal from Minnesota United up front. It's a really good goal, and I think it speaks to that relationship that I was saying, is they're both good, so good under pressure. And I think it was a little bit of a throw-in play from Minnesota to have uh, 
Reynoso come to the ball and then play to the farther Molino. Molino's a little bit closer to goal, so they play into him, and then Reynoso hooks his run around, gets that little uh, ball off of him, that little layoff ball, and then Molino just follows him, saying, okay, there's a lot of players here. If someone just gets a toe poke, I can end up getting the ball, and that's kind of what happened is they just follow the dribbler, essentially, and, and pick up the scraps and figure out a way to get the ball in the back of the net. And the Rapids couldn't stop it, ultimately. Robin Ludd gets the goal, the yeah. second goal from Minnesota United in the 54th minute off of a, a pass out of midfield for Reynoso. All the work there that still had to be done was, was Robin Ludd's. It was a great goal cutting inside on his left foot. But then the third goal from Minnesota United, it's Kevin Molino again, and it's Minnesota knifing their way through Colorado's defensive structure. It's Jan Gregush playing the ball across to Kevin Molino forward, He's on the right side of the box almost, and then Molino scores. They've just driven right through. Reynoso shakes his marker, and that's what leads to Gregush getting on the ball in the first place. The Rapids' approach to stopping Reynoso and to stopping Molino and the rest of Minnesota United's attack was to put tight pressure man-to-man, and Minnesota United just broke it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the thing that's really challenging with Minnesota United is they're willing to use their outside backs to provide width. But really, because of the players that you just mentioned, they do attack centrally with a lot of numbers and are good at it, especially in transition. And that was a transition moment after a lost ball. And so everybody is just, I don't think they left the width of the six. If they did, they went a little bit wider than that off of the the cross ball from Gregush to Molino. But they're attacking straight down the middle and saying, we're just going to overload numbers here and find the right pass. And they did. And they do. Yeah, it's a great goal from Minnesota United. They don't have a number nine starting in this game for most of it. Kai Kamara comes off the bench and plays later on in the game. But it is Robin Lode playing as that nine. He's not really a false nine. He's just another attacker playing in a more central spot. Minnesota United Mm -hmm. didn't miss a number nine. I didn't think they missed Kai Kamara up top. They didn't miss a Mason Toy or a Amaria up top. I mean, they didn't miss these guys because of how dangerous they are combining in central spaces, which is a real credit to to the players that Adrian Heath and the rest of Minnesota United's front office have brought into this this squad. I want to do one one quick takeaway on each team before we move on, Jordan, if that's okay with you. Cool, let's do it. Okay, Colorado, yeah. they're done for the year. Um, but I like what Robin Frazier is building. I like what the Rapids front office is building. I think they they need upgrades in certain spots. I think out wide could be a spot. Maybe one of the center back spots could be another one. But they have some nice depth in central midfield. They have young, talented guys who are ready to be sold on and, and generate some profit for this club. And they have a star in Eunice Nomaly in this, this yeah. squad already. What Robin Frazier is building, I can, I can see the rough outline of it, and I'm excited to see what they come out with yeah. in 2021. I kind of giggle because I honestly had that same conversation with someone last night. No way. I said if they upgrade their wingers, if they get a center back, and they need, and this was an all caps, they need to sell Cole Bassett. Because if you're the Colorado Rapids and you're going to try to continue to progress as a club and you're looking at other teams in MLS who are developing homegrowns and selling them off, you have to sell your homegrown off. You have to, Joe. Yeah. And I think Cole Bassett deserves to move on. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I think that's a key step in the evolution of this club. It's just so funny that we thought the same things. (laughs) We did did think the same thing. Unless you were reading my text messages. No, I don't. I don't think I was. Um, One one, (laughs) one thing on Minnesota United before we get to our last game of the episode. Minnesota United have done what I didn't think they could do. I'm not sure. I think a lot of teams can do this in Major League Soccer. They have combined their main identity, their main 
element of the team, and that's defending. Defending, defending, defending. High pressing sometimes, sitting lower in other moments, but they are a defensive team first and foremost. They've combined that core tenant of their identity with open, fun, combination attacking play with some real stars in the attack. And they're getting buy-in from every single person on the field. They're combining attack with defense and the other phases in between those moments. And they're doing it all at a high level right now. I didn't think Mm -hmm. they could do that. I'm not sure that I think a lot of teams can do that because it's so hard. It's so hard to do that. And credit to Minnesota United for making that happen and becoming an absolute terror in these Major League Soccer playoffs. Does it kind of remind you of Portland in ways? Yeah. Yes. That's the comparison. Portland or... Or Seattle in that they sit deeper a decent amount, but when they have the ball, they have guys who can beat you. 100%. Yeah. Speaking of Portland. that segue I just did? Speaking of (laughs) Portland, Jordan, you're good at this. You're good at this. The Portland Timbers versus FC Dallas is our final game. Dallas win 1-1 on penalties. The third penalty shootout of the the playoffs so far. Jordan, where do you want to start in this game? I want to start with just how FC Dallas chose to come out in their structure, in their personnel, all of the things. Okay. Because when I, I didn't actually see the lineups when they were shown on TV, and I was so confused trying to figure out for a minute or two what Ryan Hollingshead was doing. <laughs> like, what, where was he playing? Because he wasn't playing at his typical outside back, left back position. And I think, I think when you, when you go big picture and, and look at FC Dallas and say, okay, we're playing the Portland Timbers who after this game and in the middle of this game, I thought, oh my gosh, Portland is really good. And I think I doubted them and didn't think that they could actually win MLS Cup. And a lot of people were talking about how they could get really far and do really well. But I just didn't know because they, they're missing so many key players. But the way that they played through that game showed you how dangerous they are in attack. And so I think by adding Ryan Hollingshead as that winger on the left side, you add another level of defensive presence and tactical awareness that you wouldn't get from maybe a Michael Barrios who would then have played maybe in in place of not him as a winger, but they would then bring Fafa Pico to the left side and Barrios in. And so defensively and structure-wise and tactic-wise, I don't think Barrios fit that mold in this game. So I think it was a smart move, but I don't think it paid off until FC Dallas switched Ryan Hollingshead and Fafa Pico as the wingers, and they flopped that because that's when I felt like Dallas actually started being able to attack. And it's interesting to me in this game. I agree. I think that switch was big and Ryan Hollingshead popped up in a lot of different spots on the field over the course of this game. I think he played center back. He played some in midfield in moments. He played on both wings and I think he played Mm -hmm. left back too. So he was everywhere in this one. But for Dallas, the way that Luchi Gonzalez set up his team, not positionally, but in terms of how they were playing as a unit, he -hmm. didn't want them or he didn't have them doing everything they could to get the ball and to control it and to pass it around and to build up and do all of those things. Dallas sat by and large in a four-five-one mid block, right at the mm-hmm. right at the edge of the halfway line. They they sat the top of their defensive shape, right at the halfway point of the field, and they said to Portland, "Okay, move the ball around, break us down. We want you to try. We're going to win the ball and we're going to attack." And Portland did well with the ball. I thought Dallas may, I thought at the beginning of this game, bit off more than they could chew, but ultimately yeah. it worked, right? I mean, we can look at the chances that Portland got and all of those things, but. Dallas didn't give up a goal until the 82nd minute of this game when they're more okay with opening up and more okay with trying to grab a late winner themselves. That 
idea from Luchi Gonzalez is not what I expected. I expected they would try to control possession, but I can see where he's coming from. It was a different approach, but a logical one in that maybe the Timbers aren't always the team to break you down, especially without Sebastian Blanco. Yeah, it, it really was such an interesting tactical change for Luchi Gonzalez, and it looked like it could have been... 2-0 to zero early in the game, yeah. but also it wasn't, yep. right? So I think for FC Dallas, it speaks to their willingness to commit to something a little bit different. It was painful at moments to see them try to relieve the pressure and just not have anyone sitting there. And before Eric Williamson left the game, I was trying to count the number of times he just regained possession in his attacking half from those balls that uh, Dallas was trying to get rid of out of their defensive third. And I I lost track because he was just always there. And I think down the stretch of the game, not having Williamson, I think that it might not seem like it's a big change, but it really is a big change to the way that Portland can play and the way that they can throw numbers forward because his stability next to Chara sets the defensive tone for Portland. And so that's not why they they lost the game because it went to penalties, right? But I think that it would have allowed for a little bit more fluidity in the attack for Portland in those moments because of the stability that they had defensively. But we'll never know. We'll never know. And the Timbers do grab that (laughs) opening goal in the 82nd minute. So it's very late in this game. It's a wonderful piece of play from the Timbers. They pass the ball 15 times, leading to the ball on Diego Valeri's foot, and that finds a run from Jorge (sighs) Villafania in the box for the finish. Jordan, it is a a lovely thing that the Portland Timbers did, eventually to break down FC Dallas, which was kind of the the main thesis of this game. Mm -hmm. It was so good. I tweeted like I'm gonna go to sleep dreaming of that outside of the foot pass by Diego Valeri into space my, my college coach used to always say softer into more space and that was exactly it right like there there was only really one place that Diego Valeri could have played that ball and the spin he put on it so it was coming back to Viafania so he could hit it one time it was soft enough for that it was just utter perfection I agree I loved it Ricardo Pepe then stomps on the field. Ricardo Pepe then gets in behind the Portland Timbers back line in second half stoppage time and says, eh, that goal was cool, but I'm going to sort of just bang it into the goal after it gets saved by Steve Clark and and Pepe grabs the equalizer late, late, late in this game. The contrasting goals was funny to me. Beautiful from the Uh Timbers, really just sort of bashing it in from FC Dallas. But it worked, and it it leveled the game before extra time. Well, it was just Dallas's awareness of key moments and knowing that there there are there if a team is going to play out from a goal kick there are opportunities to get at them quickly i've i've scored i've been on teams who've scored goals in that exact moment because you are trying to challenge for the second ball and not always thinking that it's going to come straight back down your throat and peppy just was more aware in that moment and credit him what a gigantic goal i actually thought tanner tessman played him the ball i think it was it was uh, hedges in the end, but I thought Tanner Tessman's entrance into the game actually st- stabilized FC Dallas and allowed them to try to create a little bit more going forward, even when then they eventually made subs in the attacking uh, positions because he could control the ball a little bit better than Jesus Ferreira was doing. Tanner Tessman's another guy who I would not only expect to see, I don't know anything, but he seems like a guy who can make an impact with the U.S., in December, he was fantastic coming on in the 61st minute yeah. of this game. Dallas Dallas and their kids do enough. 
I don't think they were the better team okay. in this game. But the tactical approach yeah. by Lucha Gonzalez paid off. Pepe gets that late goal, and Dallas outlasts the Portland Timbers in penalties. Jordan, late, yeah, late, late. Go watch the penalties. Yeah, go watch all the penalties from all the games this week. No, but just this one, they were br- the penalties were so good. I don't even think Tim Melia would have saved any of those. Well, that's heresy. Let's uh, let's be careful. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> maybe Jordan. maybe some of them that were straight down the middle. <laughs> Jordan, that is seven games. Seven games. Every single playoff game that's happened in Major League Soccer so far. Let's take a breath. We'll be back again soon, sooner than normal. Yes. We got a special episode coming Wednesday that will recap all three of the games happening on Tuesday. LAFC Seattle is the late, late nightcap. Sorry in advance for your sleep schedule there, Jordan. Then we've got the Philadelphia Union and the New England Revolution and Toronto FC versus Nashville SC. <laughs> We're going to recap and sink our teeth into all three of those games. I'm laughing because I think we've seen LAFC and Seattle play eight million times this year, as well as Philadelphia and New England. So yep. um, we'll really get to see what different tactics. And I would I would recommend if you have ESPN Plus, go back and watch one of those games of the previous matchups with those two teams, because you, you can maybe see some differences in what tactically these teams are going to do. And we'll try to put pick those out on Wednesday when we come back. But um, we'll also not try to keep you guys over an hour on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, we tried. We tried <laughs> to keep it listening. short. We tried to keep it short. We failed. If you're at this point, we appreciate you even more, even yes. more than everyone else. Just don't tell them that. Jordan, <laughs> thank you for chatting with me. I truly appreciate it. And I always have fun. Oh my gosh. That was a blast. Thanks, Joe. Listeners, we'll be back again soon.